Today's podcast has taken a very long look at the Gaza debate in the Scottish Parliament on the basis that for some reason you might not see very much about it on the uh, Scottish or network television. And that would be a shame because it was a really heartfelt debate with great contributions actually from every political leader the settled will of a parliament in action, far more in tune with public opinion across the whole of Britain than the Westminster debate that was hardly a debate that we heard last week. Um, apparently, the BBC think some people in Scotland, maybe even many, think there is no reason why this debate should have been held in the Scottish Parliament. I would invite you to listen to it and make your own opinion up. Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi, Jums, and welcome to this week's Leslie Riddick podcast. And you know, sometimes in the midst of how depressing, uh, oh, that's a great beginning though, but again, it's going to be perfectly honest about it, watching the unfolding disaster that's taking place uh, in Gaza and the horrific uh, aspects of all those people who are being held hostage by Hamas and the, the turmoil that these families are going through, wondering what's happened to them. Sometimes there there is a ray of sunshine, Leslie, and that's been the breaking news that's been coming through this afternoon, that there appears to be, um, there have been diplomatic moves behind the scenes, and there may be a truce uh, which is going to allow for release of uh, hostages, and I think it's going to be focused mainly on women and children, and people who have been held prisoner in Palestine, again, a lot of children, um, and this could lead to like that dreaded word, humanitarian pauses through the, the medium of some form of truce. But in everything that's been going on, as I say, it is a it is a bit of light shining through in the darkness. Yeah, uh, but yeah, so I mean, it's great. You know, that is great. But it's just funny. As soon as you actually say that, you think, yeah, it is great. But uh, I mean, well, let's let's just jump to what we've been listening to, because we were listening yeah. to a really excellent debate, actually. Mm-hmm. In the Scottish Parliament, almost all the leaders pointing out that, uh, except the Tories, but we'll come to them in a minute, um, that, you know, just pauses and stuff, you know, so that what, you can just resume pounding people in another couple of hours or days or something. I mean, that seems to be where we are, so that the word truce that's being used, um, it's not being used by the Israelis. There's a line running at the moment that Netanyahu is announcing government meetings tonight in light of developments on hostage releases. So, like, that's not a truce. And he's not saying that word and he's not saying the word ceasefire. So, you know, for for him. But of course, everybody says their stuff to kind of, you know, sync with their own side. Um, This is just a development on hostage releases. And doubtless they will not be talking about having any quid pro quo until something actually happens and it looks like it might be the release of Palestinian women and children well women I'd imagine presumably children are not being held anywhere well no unfortunately uh, I think they are but well so women yeah. and children it's a kind of prisoner swap sounding um, yeah. thing which is not the same as a ceasefire so uh Moving from that, I mean, that's the news that's just coming on as we're speaking. But uh, we both stopped to, to listen to the Gaza debate, um, which has really been quite, quite amazing, actually, in, in the kind of very measured manner and the very sort of generous kind of way that the, the party leaders are addressing this and addressing one another. Uh, it really, it's kind of quite unprecedented. I mean, Hamza Youssef kind of obviously very powerful in, in what he was saying. Um, and talking about just this, just phrases that just conjure up things that you've seen that you just can't sort of unseen what he he talks about medieval medicine being practiced yeah. at the moment um, where caesareans are being undertaken without anaesthetic. Uh, it, you know, the, the level of, of and he equated the number dead in, in uh, the Gaza Strip, but sort of making a parallel to the relative num you know number of the population he was saying the numbers that are killed have been killed there would equate to 300,000 people being dead in the United Kingdom yeah. so it's just to kind of bring it home to people's you know kind of minds and he moved very swiftly on to this idea that he said simply a pause which of course is what Keir Starmer's talking about um i don't know what the tories are talking about but whatever um, only to resume killing a few hours later. 
you know, and I mean, that seemed to be the position that most people, apart from the Tories, were taking. Um, and, and he was pointing out that, you know, 50 percent of buildings in North Gaza are now rubble. They don't exist. So he was he also talked about the world not keeping its promise to the Palestinians um, that when the previous settlements were made, there was going to be moves towards a two state solution that really hasn't happened. And he ended up calling, saying that he'd written to Keir Starmer and to Rishi Sunak asking them to join him in recognizing the state of Palestine. So, you know, there's been a slow just turning up of the volume by by Hamza Youssef. And I should say that he, you know, as, as ever, he paid his respects and recognition to Jewish and Muslim families and mentioned I'm summarizing here. And he'd also talked about, you know, the hurt and the traumas that still exists in Israel. But he ended up with this sentence that I'm sure would have hit you as, as it did me, Pat, where he said, every child deserves a chance to grow up. Yeah. yeah. And it just, you know, that just fairly puts the the kind of the light on where we are with all of this at the moment. I mean, Donald Cameron, the, uh, who was speaking for the Tories, actually said, you know, he said, I find it hard to disagree with the measured and eloquent speech of the first minister. Yeah. And he said, I applaud the first minister. He visited the synagogue in Gifnuk at the time that his own relatives were prisoners, essentially, in Gaza and grieved with the people there. And he said that will never be forgotten. And so, you know, this is this is no one's doing petty stuff. I mean, we've opted out of listening after we listened to the, the main speak, speeches from the party leaders. It's actually quite difficult then to listen in a way to everyone else, because as as we'll go on to describe, it's actually quite emotionally harrowing listening to them because they're actually so good. Um, but just to complete, you know, the the Tories, uh, they they will they don't agree with the ceasefire. So that's pretty much he said. But you know, he 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 agreed with pretty much everything else that was in the SNP motion, which is a bit of a turn up. Um, have you got no? I don't want to keep talking. If you've got notes on what Anna Sarwar said. Oh well, yeah, but, but before I before I leave Donald Cameron again because I was very impressed with the way he his tone and his register, but it was the the fact that he there was no condemnation or mention as far as I recall of what the current Israeli government's uh, actions and the IDF actions were in Gaza. He talked about loss of innocent lives, etc. But there was, there was, it was un, unlike what uh, Hamza Youssef, Anna Sarwar, Alex Cole Hamilton and Ross Gear talked about, where they, they were utterly, utterly condemned what Hamas did and then went on to condemn what the IDF and the Israeli current Israeli government are doing. But I thought that was that. But Anna Sarwar, again, whom I, I have got no... I, I watched the Martin Geisler interview where he was, where I thought Martin Geisler was excellent. And by the way, folks, if you want to applaud Martin for that interview he did with Anna Sarwar, just remember that's the way he should be with everyone, and he is with everyone. But that's my perspective on it. But again, where he 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 skewered Anna Sarwar, saying, "How would you have voted if you'd been in Westminster?" And that's the position that Anna Sarwar finds himself in in terms of. The, the Labour Party at UK level response and what I believe to be Anna Sarwar's deeply held beliefs on the situation where he was very straightforward and turning around and saying that the Israeli government is operating in breach of international law and called upon the ICC to investigate both sides for breaches of international law and he was utterly condemnatory on that point. And I, as I say, I thought it was an excellent speech from Anasarwar. Again, I, going back to, again, what I, the personal experience that he had with Pauline McNeil when he was in Gaza and saying it's been 15 years of neglect when he went into the, the, the Al-Sharif hospital and identified the fact of how poorly it was being able to be run there because of the ongoing uh, blockade that was being enacted on Gaza. And he said, and it's worse now. It, but yeah. it was bad, but it's been 15 years, 15 years. And I thought I thought it was a tremendous speech from Anna Sarwar. And it almost it says to me, I just wish the goodness he could be freed from the straitjacket that he's operating within, within UK Labour, where you will not hear that from the, the Labour leadership, even though you heard it from 50-odd Labour MPs last Wednesday.
Mm -hmm. But I mean, to be fair to him, there was a lot of speculation that he was actually going to do a U-turn. I mean, that was all over the papers and he didn't. He hasn't. So, I mean, he said very unequivocally, I back an immediate ceasefire. You know, he said Netanyahu has no interest in peace. Um, And he was talking. Yeah, he was saying there's no justification for the collective punishment of people in Gaza. Israel's in breach of international law. I mean, he's talking about the Al-Shifa hospital visit he made in 2008 with Pauline McNeil. He said, you know, we were we were standing looking at incubators. Some of the, the premature babies were in incubators, but there was a whole stack of other incubators which couldn't be connected up because maintenance work and peace, just parts basically, mm-hmm. had not been allowed in because of the blockade being implemented by Israel. And he actually said, Pauline and I stood, held each other and yeah. sobbed. So, you know, and he talked about kidney dialysis machines being in the same situation, switched off um, and says the 15 year failure on moving since, two, since that visit in 2008 shames the entire world yeah. so you know there was there was no pulling his punches and he made very strong points about you know peace only happens when we see every life as equal and that that speaks to a lot of you know what's what's been going on at the moment in that you know palestinian lives do not seem to be equal to israeli lives at the moment um in the eyes of the israeli defense force um then alex cole hammerton yeah. spoke and said that uh at one point, he said, um, I, th- I think I'm not going to move my amendment. Um, and he said, Hamza, basically, Hamza Yusuf and Anasar will have spoken for me. Yeah. Now, I don't know if we're we're speaking whilst this is still going on. So I don't know if, if at the end of it, he'll feel, well, actually, fine. I don't really need to move this amendment, which, again, would be a bit of a turn up for everyone not having to have. Their, this is my one. This is my one. This is my one. Um, Ross Greer, Jings, yeah. um, was the strongest from the Greens was the strongest speaker of the lot. Absolutely. I don't know if I'm going to get through this in one piece, but, um, you know, he, he, boy, in six minutes flat, he just boiled through down through the whole horrible, sorry situation that's, that's afflicted Palestinians for 75 years, um, has talked about just the, you know, terrible, just the terrible plight. Um, he then went on to talk about the background of individuals within the Israeli government, particularly talking about Ben Gavir, who lives actually on settled land, illegally settled land. Um, you know, I can't summarise quickly enough, but it's if you want to hear just a very tightly concise condemnation, really, of the position of the current Israeli government, um, that is one heck of a speech that he made. Um, and he he also said, which I think will be picked up and doubtless, you know, he'll get hauled over the coals again, is that he said terrorists aren't all on one side. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. he's basically saying the, you know, the Israeli government c- contains terrorists. Yeah. Um, he went on to talk about, you know, state terrorism and on the part of the Israelis, apartheid being practiced by them. And then the bit that was really so very moving, he, he talked about a lot of people saying to him, do you not realize that Hamas are very anti-LBTQ uh, kind of rights? And he, he, you know, sort of pointed out that this was a fairly bizarre kind of argument that because, yeah, Hamas are extremely anti-gay and minorities, that somehow that justifies the actions by Israel. And he was talking about the messages that are being sent by people at the moment, and particularly uh, from LGBTQ people. There's one particular website that people who don't expect to survive are sending uh, their messages to. And a lot of them are just the most incredibly poignant messages um, to to loved ones who basically got killed, but more specifically to um, people who were loved from afar Mm-hmm. And the speaker, the the letter writer, the message sender never had the courage to tell them how they felt. And now it's too late because they got killed yesterday. Yeah. So there's one in particular um, to Eunice. I will kiss you in heaven. And it was incredibly powerful. And it was a brave thing to do to actually single these messages out because you can say that people are preparing to die. And we know because we've all seen it on TV 
one terrible, uh, you know, one where uh, the, uh, a father was describing how the family were split up between North and South Gaza. He was there with, I think, his daughter and one bairn. And the mother was at the other end of Gaza with one or two of the other bairns, because that way there was a likelihood one of them would survive. And the way people are planning how they're dying is just, God, it just is so incredibly emotional. And it brings the urgency to come back to the point. This is not a kind of, OK, there is a solution. There is a need for talking about two state solution. And as Ross Greer said, there's also people in Israel uh, who want to who think they can move towards a neutral state, one state solution. Yep, that's all there to be discussed. Um, and he made the point that the people of Gaza, it's their land and you can't airbrush them out of it and you can't take it over in the way that settlers are now displacing people in scores on the West Bank at the moment. Yeah. But, you know, all of this was basically saying this is so urgent. If there is, OK, it's fine if there's true stuff going on in the background. But all governments now need to be making, you know, pushing so hard to get a ceasefire out now. And quite obviously, the, the big marches will just keep happening now until this gets moved on. Unless they bring in emergency legislation to actually stop the big marches, you know, because I would I wouldn't I wouldn't. I mean, that may just be a bit of communication that the Conservative Party are putting out there to kind of in, engender support in their, in their base. But I thought, again, it was that point that Ross Gear made about pink washing. About as if LGBTQ people weren't being bombed to death, and I said you cannot, you cannot uh, erase what uh, the IDF is doing by having Israeli soldiers raise rainbow flags over the rubble of Gaza. So yes, incredibly powerful, and and that whole point that you made about he went back the 75 years, talked about the Nakba, talked about this being the potential for the Nakba, and that key point of actually stressing if you actually support. The current government of Israel, let's examine precisely who these people are and their far right fascist racist ideologies. That's who, if you turn around and say Israel right or wrong, currently that is the government that you're supporting. And those are the people who you will you will say are right or right or wrong. You just hope, hope that there are diplomatic moves going on behind it. But the thing I also took out of it as well, other than Stephen Kerr, the Conservative MSP, with his usual lack of grace, decided uh, that uh, he was going to tweet the fact that uh, why didn't fundamentally Hamza Yusuf get back and do his day job uh, rather than pontificating about what's going on in Gaza. That was in stark contrast to Donald Cameron's statements. And start yeah. contrast. And Absolutely. I'm at this stage now. I've just th these guys are attention-seeking wasics, you know. I mean, yeah. So whatever, Stephen Kerr. I mean, just as we came came on on to do the podcast, <clears throat> and it will be very interesting to see the contributions of of Labour pe people because Labour, you know, so many people have visited Gaza mm -hmm. um, uh, across the chamber, but particularly I think Labour and the SNP. Um, and and as we came on, Pauline McNeil, who had accompanied Anas Sarwar on that trip in 2008, was actually talking about, I think the thing is also that the connections are made and, and, and maintained, actually, so that there seems to be links that endure. And that's now where people are feeling the connections and perhaps therefore feeling a lot of empathy, actually, for the real situation that Hamza Yusuf's family find themselves in. But anyway... Uh, she was talking about a surgeon who'd had to produce, who'd had to perform an amputation on his own child without anaesthetic and the child died. Oh, geez. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and she was also quoting, uh, you know, the, the quotes that have come from a lot of prominent Israeli cabinet ministers about dropping a nuclear bomb on, you know, I mean, th these are being said. People might think, well, you know, steady on. This is what's being said in the Scottish Parliament now. And this is, from what I remember of the Westminster debate, not what anyone felt they could say. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, at the end of it, I can't remember who said it, um, there will be a vote. And that's why we decided to just come out and, and kind of just move ahead with the podcast, because it looks pretty certain now that the Scottish Parliament will vote for an immediate ceasefire, that Labour have maintained their position on a Sarwar's position, which, of course, puts them at odds with Keir Starmer. But just for now, um, 
you know, that's that is quite an achievement for the Scottish Parliament to kind of hold steady and pretty much pull most of the political parties, you know, including us at, at least a sort of acknowledgement of how much shared ground there is, even with the Conservatives. I mean, that's another astonishing thing. You know, if you look at the difference, even with the way the Conservatives are approaching this, there's no I'm not standing in a cham- same chamber as somebody who's describing the Israeli government as terrorists, which, yes. you know, I mean, OK, give it time. By the time we finished recording this, somebody will have doubtless have you know moved that way. But we haven't got that. You know what what uh, Donald Cameron was at pains to do was to say how to- nearly totally they agreed, actually, with the whole tenor of where the rest of the parliament was at. And that coming back to this question of a settled will in the Scottish Parliament and also one which therefore reflects the majority of opinion in Scotland and in the United Kingdom on this. Um, the, the poll I referred to last week, I, th- I got to a situation where I thought, James, I thought I think I've made a mistake here. It was 53 percent of the public want an immediate ceasefire. That was probably about an hour, a week, 10 days ago. But when you remove the don't knows, it rose to about 70 percent. So that's where the statistics come from. But, you know, that's that's more in keeping in a step with anything that's coming from the two main political parties representing voters in the United Kingdom. Yeah, which is and, yeah. astonishing. Yeah, and the, the other thing as well was there was no attempt made by uh, Anna Sarwar to take forward that narrative that we've seen presented uh, by Labour Party down uh, at Westminster, which was that the SNP were purely playing politics with the uh, King's Speech Amendment calling for a ceasefire in an attempt to be divisive, uh, not only in the Parliament, but divisive within the Labour Party, as if there's some sort of some sort of a political skullduggery that the SNP were engaging in, despite the fact that they've been calling for a ceasefire for 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 for, for days yes. before that. And it, it it just seems to me again that again and when you get people like if you if you're uniting Anna Sarbert and Richard Leonard both of whom are on different wings of the Labour Party up here and speaking with one voice about an immediate ceasefire. That just goes again to show the difference between the political atmosphere at Westminster and the political atmosphere in, in, in Holyrood. Yeah, it does. So, I mean, there's nothing there's nothing good about any of this. And no. it's, it is quite, you know, it is quite a it is quite a harrowing listen, actually, to, to, to listen to people. But they've made the effort to try to combine their their political position with as much vivid description as they can give to then sustain their analysis of the fault the serious faults and the you know the breaches of international law currently being undertaken by an Israeli government which is stacked full with let's just be charitable right wingers who themselves are many of them are illegal settlers now you can't end up thinking that just whatever that group of people wants to do, hey, knock yourselves out. And as far as you know, we're seeing within Israel, it'll take time for this discontent to manifest itself. But there's still so many very powerful speakers calling for Benjamin Netanyahu to stand down. Um, maybe not this second, but you know, the, the, the growing somewhere where we're going to be within the next couple of weeks will very possibly be a huge push by the population in Israel to get themselves a new political settlement. And that's coming from, obviously, the relatives of the 242 hostages who now clearly don't have confidence uh, that that the hostages' safety is actually uppermost in the minds of the Israeli Defence Force or, or haven't been told or haven't been included or just don't know or just want, want more assurances, even just from their own point of view, you'd have to say that as it goes backwards and forwards, watching the uh, the situation in the Al-Shifa hospital, that which was meant to be riddled with um, tunnels and, you know, which may yet prove to be so. But still, as you hear, you know, as the days go by and the claims that were made for that at the beginning, there ha- you know, there has not been uh, yet any sort of video evidence of massive um, Hamas headquarters beneath that hospital. The Israelis are saying that's because they're going through it very gingerly because they imagine a lot of it will be booby trapped and, and mined. 
But it just brings the mind so quickly back to all that, you know, back in the Iraq war and the claims of yes. weapons of mass destruction. And it just feels like we've been here before, you know, with governments that or reach themselves because they've decided what they want to do and they've decided what will work as a as a as a rationale. And then when it just comes to it, and of course, now there are fewer and fewer journalists on the spot to be able to verify anything. But we just haven't seen the the imagery that you would expect to see if there was something, you know, the likes of which we've seen in simulation. You wonder where that is. So lots of discontent in Israel and here. And and I don't know how this will play. Presumably this will just get airbrushed from the news. It won't probably even be on the network news tonight. But, um, you know, a really, a really powerful debate. And I think people should feel something that the mm-hmm. Scottish Parliament has a, been able to sort of step up, you know, like the adults, basically, within the context of this really vexed, horrible issue. Yeah, just to just to go back a little bit, because one of the difficulties with the the, uh, the current Israeli stance on making claims about things is so several of their claims that they've made recently have been proven to be absolutely false. The 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 video that was put out of uh, ostensibly a nurse in the hospital turned around saying it was Hamas run, etc. That turns out this is a Mexican Israeli actress. And it was it was fake. Uh, the 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 officially putting out of what was claimed to be uh, Palestinians acting as if they were wounded and look this is them all getting was actually behind the scenes footage of a Lebanese movie, you know. And Jeez. if you actually yes, when you actually put these things out there, you know what that then does is you say to someone, well, what can you actually believe when two these were put out as as this is fact and they've been knocked on the head absolutely and completely and the difficulty about how this once you're caught on a lie particularly at this level people will then become extremely cynical skeptical about anything else you put out put out in the future and uh, of course they've got the, the reason why they knew there were so many uh, bunkers underneath the hospital etc because they were put there when the israelis refurbished the building so you know that that, that existed and that it's you know it is that thing. Once you lie, as I say, you're caught in a lie, and that goes on a personal, personal relationship basis. And probably most of us, well, I find out to my own cost. Once you're caught in a lie, that's it. it you question everything else that that comes after that. But and as you said, the other aspect is what's going on in the West Bank. There is no Hamas in the West Bank, and it's uh, I think it's been 200 uh, Palestinians have been killed, including 52 children. Uh, have been killed on the West Bank. Um, last Wednesday was the um, King's speech um, amendment, uh, SNP uh, ceasefire. Uh, but also last Wednesday was the Supreme Court decision, which declared that the uh, the Rwanda plan, uh, which was uh, which is it was unlawful. That was a full stop. The Supreme Court, the highest court of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, not a foreign court, decided that it was unlawful on the basis of that Rwanda could not fill its obligations internationally and in terms of the agreement. And the result of that was, of course, well, if uh, the Supreme Court thinks it's unlawful, we're going to make it lawful. And it's just, just again, another Alice through the looking glass, Alice in Wonderland movement where, uh, and you also had, uh, uh, is it Lee Anderson? The uh, turning around saying, uh, of course, what the what the the UK government should do is just quite simply go ahead and break the law, which under the the UK government's own definition of extremism, which you 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 call for the breaking of UK law, that makes uh, the deputy chair of the Conservative Party officially an extremist. So we'll yeah, but then we kind of knew that. I mean, I, this is not to sort of, you know, I, I, we should remain horrified and aghast. But, yeah. you know, he it's almost like he goes out there to do this unsayable thing. And by dint of that makes the rest of them sound semi-reasonable. Yeah. So let's just get back to them and this unreasonableness, because this is, I mean, having listened now to however many analysis analyses of this, uh, you know, nobody is quite seeing how this can actually be done easily, properly or any kind of way, which is to sort of say that basically Rwanda, you know, the government is just going to state Rwanda is safe. I mean, perhaps yeah. they'll, they'll just kind of come out and say water is dry. You know, I mean, 
is this what we've come down to now that just by absolute fiat of their you know what suits them they can they can state these things whether somehow Rishi Sunak because he's trying to kind of perm himself to between all these extremist uh, remarks to sound like the reasonable guy still although we'll come on to his thoughts about Mm -hmm. people being allowed to die from COVID um, in a minute which really should just be the end of that man but anyway um you know, he's trying to sound as if he's a bit more reasonable on this Rwanda front. So, uh, you know, th- he's saying, no, we're not going to come out of the European Convention of Human Rights. But there's a whole stack of other things. Mm, you know, we might have to change this, we might have to change that. We might have to put a new law in that says, it. I mean, for crying in an actual bucket, when you come back to, you know, the point that is made repeatedly by s- some very good journalists every time, this is mentioned, um, there is probably about 1% of the number of people who appear in Britain who could potentially go to Rwanda. You know, this is not a solution mm-hmm. to anything. All of this all of this is just, it's the same with the Bibby Stockholm, again, just about 1%. You know, it's tiny percentages that will go to these eye-catching, you know, horribly controversial destinations, while the big backlog, the biggest in Europe and something like two to three times the backlog in France and Germany of asylum claims just continues to sort of rack up. And instead, all anyone will talk about is whether or not we are, you know, Britain is being bullied over Rwanda. It's just, yeah, it does kind of beggar belief. And again, it's just such a sort of reduced childish way to look at a genuine problem that it actually makes you embarrassed when you have to listen to them you know as as if I mean, it is it is just totally embarrassing actually the the, the you know the, the level of what what we're down to now in terms of of the of kind of immigration and i just don't know now you know where's the bulk of the british public with this it's just baffling that anybody could take this seriously but you know hey there we are well, that, that's the bet that they're making, Leslie, is that they, 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 these eye-catching uh, policies, which, again, they've got not a, a snowball's chance in hell of getting it through Parliament by the time of the next general election, because the House of Lords will, will stall it and stop it. And it'll just be ping-pong going backwards and forwards if they do get it through the House of Commons. And they they will, they will use, the, the, this is again, I, I keep thinking to myself that the possibility that they're actually operating under is they think that they've actually lost the general election and what they're doing is trying to rally the base and try and try and get the base to come out and, 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 and support them while slipping in, oh, look at David Cameron, the socially liberal conservative that brought in austerity. But he was socially liberal. We got him as foreign secretary now and try and get the, the blue on the home counties back on board along with the, the, the pledges that they made on things like inheritance tax, which which disproportionately is going to benefit folk that live in the home counties and the, the top you know, 10% of the population. So you've, you've you've got that going on, but it's it's I think it's it's just a sign of the, the thrashing about that, that, that that's happening and the chaos that there is in there. But but it bears no resemblance to the what what is now coming out of the absolute chaos an utter incompetence underneath the surface that has been revealed uh, with Sir Patrick Valance's uh, uh, appearance at the uh, the COVID inquiry. Uh, yeah, these guys are not pulling their punches. Oh, not uh, at you all. You know, unbelievable. But then it's his actual diary, so it's not. It's almost like he's not saying this now, but. You know, he he was recording uh, Rishi Sunak as being okay with people dying from the virus. Another bit of his diary said, um, you know, it was a meeting with Prime Minister. He begins to argue for letting it all rip, saying, yes, there will be more casualties, but they have had a good innings. Yeah. It's just, I mean, why does anybody take any of these people seriously? It's just, you know, and then we've heard all the stuff about, you know, how Boris Johnson was bamboozled by the COVID-19 graphs. And then I see Guto Harry, who was, uh, you know, oh, has yeah. jumped between being a BBC correspondent and Tory spin doctor, is basically saying, you know, that this is an outrageous slur on Boris. He's not that stupid. Well, all right. Somebody came back very quickly saying uh, in that case, yeah, he was absolutely deliberately pretending that he didn't understand incredibly important data. Uh, you know, the result of which was the death of probably tens of thousands of people. Um I don't know how again how how people are sort of receiving this. Have they this this horrible phrase priced it in? You know that they knew this was coming. That that there'd been 
you know, there've been suggestions all the, you know, all the way through the last couple of years that that uh, you know the the chief medical officers and the scientific community and Sage had no idea Rishi Sunak was doing his eat out to help out thing. Um, yes. You know, which which they just said, well, do you know it? Kind of that was we would never have let that happen. And then it, it, I guess it sort of brings you back to though the veneer of of kind of agreement that there was between all the all those parties really through through that period. I don't know how you wouldn't have ended up resigning over this, to be honest, if mm-hmm. if you had seen this level of you know if jaw dropping kind of dismissiveness about just un, un, sort of unhuman kind of you know behaviour. How long? How? Because these guys managed to stay in post through, you know, the whole way through. Uh, anyway, it just seems extraordinary now in hindsight. But I, I just wonder where, where the public's at with that because yes. I see people saying this should be the end of Rishi Sunak, and you know, actually, happily, it will be the end of Rishi Sunak, you know, one way or t'other. But I don't know. Will it be over this? Will it be over his his eat out to help out and just the dismissive, hap- just to let people die from COVID attitude? Yeah, I I, I genuinely don't know because it's it is that 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 thing where again it was it was it was phrased by uh, the politics trump the science, whereas actually it was the fact of uh, let it rip seemed to be the. Uh, the phrase that was constantly being used, and Rishi Sunak, yeah. So the economy, the economy, you know, has to has to take precedence over people's lives, you know. Um, and and, I, and I actually find- keeping the myth going, because the thing that struck me through the whole of that period was the whole, you know, the the, the whole shtick of Britain is this: we're open for business. You know, of yes. course we're open for business because we go, you know, what we do is we go around essentially historically stealing other people's wealth and then you know yes. trading it basically you know so now what we've we got very good at is trading other people's stuff and that does need you know that needs this kind of veneer of we're an open society because hey we'll trade anybody's wealth we really will we'll let anybody come here and invest in the uk russian oligarchs you know i mean you name it they're all here that's the kind of way we hang you know so if that's your conception of britain you know global britain that a measure of how brilliant we are is that we can have you know we're awash with all the dirty money in the world you're not going to close that closing that down is sort of like like basically for these guys seems to be having to throw their dream away of of kind of the sort of Britain that they imagine exists so that the second you have to close, I mean, it's only, you know, these nasty socialist Nordic states and places and these weird people in the Far East who'd already had various other scares from kind of um, pandemics who would do something as draconian as shut the gates and say, and the Aussies, you know, but I mean, they're mm-hmm. crazy on the other side of the world. So it, it kind of, this exceptionalism, which just, since, you know, I've had a long weekend of <laughs> focusing on all this question of exceptionalism in a constitutional way with the breakup of Britain conference. But the exceptionalism sits right at the heart of this inability to do something proactive about COVID, because right up to the end, you have to keep this myth going that the most important thing about Britain is that it's open for business and that it won't regulate and that it won't check it won't make judgments about people. It won't interfere with the free, you know, free movement, except, you know, not that much of a free movement in no. Europe. But all of that stuff had got to stay in place because that's the kind of Britain these guys all believed in. And and the, then what set against what? On the other side of the scales, you know, was people they just didn't rate. All exactly. people, you yep. know, people that were just disposable. So there was there was nothing in it for them. There was only the risk of denting Britain's you know, come on, come, come on, you know, come all ye kind of approach to people with wealth. And on the other hand, there was a bunch of old people, disposable old people. It's just it's a no brainer for them. And you hear it through all these quotes. It's just the kind of no brainer aspect of it as they exchange these details, which is, you know, horrific, but politically horrific, because that's still sitting at the centre of the ground that, Keir Starmer has to make up to be able to get that section of the electorate on board, which is scary. Well, I I I wrote down when I was watching 
when I was watching the COVID inquiry, empathy, question mark, humanity, question mark, were the two things that, that, that sprang to my mind. And the only excuse I can make for violence and witty, etc., is the fact that they, they may out of a sense of duty thought they had to stay on board in order to offer contrary advice and stick in there and try and get things. I mean, and that's, you know, that's my the only offer I could I could I could make on it. But it just actually and it is that 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 the as I say, is the lack of empathy, is the lack of humanity. It's that seeing people as disposable units who are only there to actually create wealth for other people and the other people being them and them, those and such as those. And the 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 reckoning I think they've made, Leslie, is the fact that what they're going to do is they think by the time the election comes around in maybe a year's time, just under a year's time, it will have faded into the background and the noise of stop the boats, the noise of, well, we're going to cut income, we've cut income tax, the noise of we've brought inflation down. The inflation that they claimed at one point had nothing at all, the UK government, now it's come down to below 5%, is everything to do with the UK government. So that's the strange one there. And they hope the noise that they can produce on these things and the culture war issues to do, like, you know, climbing up the cenotaph and things like that, they hope that that will do the trick and all that we found out about the incompetence, the lack of organisation, the arrogance of this government will be forgotten in that noise. Yeah. But coming back to these individuals, I mean, I'm very minded of, and this would be relevant for the Michael Matheson point as well. Yeah. Um, is, you know, back, do you remember back when Catherine Calderwood, who was the National Clinical yeah. Director in Scotland, went to a second home in, in Fife, and that was, you know, everybody else was locked down. That was against the rules. Nicola Sturgeon sort of hummed and hawed about it for a day and then realised it just wasn't on. You know, she couldn't stay. Yeah. Now, I'm sure at that point, anybody at, the, in, at that point in the pandemic would just think, you, you know, I can't lose someone like this. You know, you just how, how is that possible? Mm-hmm. And then I think I'm right because I've got a terrible memory for people's posts, uh, hierarchies and positions that they hoard because it's not the way my brain works. <laughs> but I think that her successor was Jason Leach. I think so, yes. So, you know, it's kind of like people always think this, that, that folk are utterly irreplaceable. And that's not to be dismissive about Catherine Calderwood, but just as an extremely good communicator who seems to have, you know, when, when you look at... I don't think we've quite got to the stage of applause for um, him in particular from those who are giving evidence in London at the moment. But there certainly has been big plaudits for the yes. Scottish system of, of collecting data and of connecting with one another and of sort of working cooperatively. So the, the point was, does I, I just when it comes back to this thing about Michael Matheson and people feeling that there's nobody else there to, to do the job. Of course, there's somebody else. There's always somebody else. You know, anybody who's got this notion, particularly you'll find in life, <laughs> if you if you entertain the notion that you're irreplaceable in yes. any way at all, you will be sadly disappointed. Yes. <laughs> you will be, you know. Um, and I, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I worry with the Michael Matheson thing that just it's, it's going to be very difficult for him actually to kind of get around mm-hmm. that. And it would have been a I think it would have been a strong thing for him when he was faced with all these these conflicts of interest that he had with his bairns and not wanting to shop them and nonetheless that then meaning he, he ended up telling porkies when you get yourself all mixed up like yeah. that there is just the possibility of standing back and deciding to go because uh, again having been at the heart of many you know what seemed at the time highfalutin kind of you know busy old jobs and everything I, I do, you know, I do remember you think that what you're in is the world, but it's actually just a world. You know, there's a whole series of worlds in, you know, around us and people get incredibly hot up about the particular position they're in, the particular job they're doing, the environment, the, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, it can just be a very, very liberating, powerful thing to do, actually, to decide sometimes to just go on your own terms. But anyway, that's not where we are. No, I mean, I, and as we know from the past, it's the cover up that gets you. 
that's what gets you. That's that's the that's the issue, as you say, if you don't up. And I know for good turn is saying, what about Douglas Ross and his what nearly thirty thousand pounds of And what earnings? about Michelle Moan, who yeah, always gets thrown this, in yeah. at the yeah, side? And, you know, yeah, nobody yeah, blimmin' it. It just it doesn't it it really yeah. doesn't. As soon as you've got what about? I mean, I'm just you know straight back to the what aboutery stuff. As soon as you're into that, it's true, but it just also doesn't really get you very far, you know. So yeah. um, especially when there's been kind of, you know, the Scottish government has had question marks thrown at quite a number of ministers yeah. and their efficacy. So you just can't have any more of those. You know, if you were if you were doing fine and there hadn't been any particular problems about, you know, we're not wishing to get into all of this, but bottle deposit return and HPMAs and all this sort of thing, yeah. which you, you can argue about who is, if you like, to blame or any of that. But nonetheless, in the public's perception, there probably is a few question marks sitting now. So you just don't want any more like that. And you want, I think you want to look strong. The strongest thing, you know, that back that Nicola Sturgeon did that time was was to sort of take that day and then say with great regret, this was, it was not possible for her to continue. Um, And that, actually you know sometimes doing the really tough sacrifice because actually nobody wants to lose somebody that they also know as a friend and have you know they've 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 got the whole thing set up so it's kind of convenient it's a sacrifice of your own comfort um and your own you're gonna have to sit and figure it all out all the stuff you're gonna have to figure out that sort of sacrifice however is quietly impressive sometimes yeah Yeah. yes Right. Uh, but you mentioned earlier there that you, you were at the the breakup of Britain conference, which, again, has come at a, an entirely appropriate time, which was a, a celebration of Tom Nairn, was it not, and his seminal seminal writings. But the, the, the thing about it was it's come at an appro- uh, incredible appropriate time where we see these 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 splits and these that have taken place in the Labour Party, for example, which shows different different paths that uh, people who still remain in that, that I hate the phrase, broad church take on matters such as devolution and foreign policy, domestic policy as well. The differences that have been emphasised between the behaviours of the, the Scottish government and the, the UK government during COVID, uh, the incompetence of the UK government during COVID, all these things must have been circling around, were they not? during this conference? Well, totally. Uh, I mean, the first, I was speaking in the first plenary session, but by gum, what a humdinger of a thing that was from everybody else that was in it. Uh, There was Caroline Lucas, who's the Green MP. She's standing down, actually, and she's writing a book about Englishness. Uh, Leanne Wood, Mm -hmm. who was the leader of Plaid Cymru. Um, She's still a campaigner for Welsh independence as a republic. Uh, Clive Lewis. Now, by God, this guy, what a guy. Um, He's he's been the Labour MP for Norwich South since 2015. He chairs the Labour campaign for electoral reform. This is one brave guy because, you know, this is a Labour MP coming to a conference essentially established by people who are supporters of Scottish independence. And it was because he rated Tom Nairn so highly. And this is another of these things that it's almost like over the years, I wonder if we've become a bit sort of anti-intellectual. I was having a, a conversation with um, one of the uh, alas there who's actually German, uh, who is one of the co-organisers of Europe for Scotland, Janina Jetter. And I was trying to say to her when we were talking about something else, you need to just try and make things a bit punchy. And it's quite a characteristic of, of sort of the Italian and German way of speaking that you have long words with about five or 7,000 <laughs> syllables and basically they sound quite stiff and a bit stilted. And I was trying to just gently say, it just needs to be a bit more sort of direct really to kind of speak to Scots. And and that, uh, you know, she was kind of saying, yeah, she finds it very puzzling. She said, when I'm speaking to you, she said, I want to address you as Dr. Dr. Riddick all the time. knock yourself out girl you know I said well see like there's the thing because I don't use the doctor thing that I got because that would actually to my mind act as a barrier in Scotland to uh, you know with people sort of thinking who do you think you are now this could be a bit controversial if you work in the academic world and you've got a doctorate and that's your life that's fine it was a thing I did but it's not sort of the majority of my life at all so it, it feels like it's just characterising me in a way that doesn't feel right. But to come back to the question of, 
of Tom Nairn, you know, person after person stood up and said, I'm an Italian. Tom Nairn changed my thinking. You know, I'm French. I read Tom Nairn, you know, back in the in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. English people, Clive Lewis included, who came up and said, yeah, this is really thought provoking stuff. And uh, and the sort of the Clive's black and the kind of the analysis he had was very strongly from the point of view of the breakup of Britain is the collapse of, of sort of almost moral standards within Britain over its position on migration, windrush and the, you know, the, the kind of theft, basically, from from colonies that it's still essentially, yeah. you know, b- billing around. So people came from a whole stack of different directions <clears throat> on all of this. And it was really, I mean, the, there was not a weak link in that. It was an incredibly powerful session. There was about 700 people there. It cost 25 quid each. I think we said this before. I'm sorry that it cost 25 quid. Um, the organisers were, but as I've said before, uh, there was no support from any of the big institutional funds that would normally fund big seminal um, democratic conferences. And this is the point of what this was about is it was looking at all sorts of aspects of democracy. But that was the wrong leaves on the line because it was taking a national perspective with sessions on Ireland, for example. Fascinating thing from one of the lasses that was speaking in that session um, was the fact that the 2016, I think it was, um, uh, citizens' assemblies and then referendums on abortion and equal marriage has had a really incredible effect on Irish democracy. One woman said that the number of under 25-year-old women uh, registering to vote had increased by 90 percent since 2016. And that that's part of what has then changed the whole face of who the electorate is. And this is the same sort of effect as you saw immediately after the Indyref, that massive involvement in a big, you know, important democratic event, uh, which has, you know, begun to sort of sidle off now uh, a bit as you have nothing of the same calibre of moment, I suppose, uh, put before people. But, But in Ireland... It's it's like people have kind of got the message and we're so enlivened and emboldened and whatever you want to say, enfranchised by seeing that a view all of them held had found its way through a democratic process of the Citizens Assembly and then into a referendum and then into law that they thought, I'm going to register to vote and I'm actually going to vote and I'm going to be an active citizen. And so who is in there now as the electorate? has kind of changed quite a bit to the extent that obviously the housing problems that Ireland has that are massive, mm-hmm. strangely alluded to today in an article by Brian Wilson in the, the Herald, who is talking about the problems of having a big migrant, an immigration uh, situation where there is, I think, 200,000 uh, people have come from different you know, countries, not just the EU, and there's nowhere to put everybody. Ireland's an attractive place to come but there's not enough housing. Um, and this, though, is uh, now becoming the biggest issue within Irish politics. The reason that Sinn Féin looks absolutely set mm-hmm. to win the next election, such that the next Taoiseach will be the first woman, likely, and Sinn Féin. And this is all, if you like, maybe this is oversimplifying it, but you know, one of the big motors in this sort of change happening was the Citizens' Assembly solution to something that political parties were not brave enough to tackle themselves. So this is all the stuff that was being talked about. And um, there was a session as well about can England recover from Great Britain, which was a fascinating Mm -hmm. session too. There was another session about the future of the Yes campaign. Um, But what I noticed online was I Mm. was doing my usual journalism, trying to take little tidbits of you know, the, the nub of what people have been saying and tweeting them out and um, actually just getting absolute pelters. Um, you know, you, you're listening and saying, what's new, girl? You know, yes. uh, but actually the level of it is just, uh, you know, sometimes it's really quite hard to sort of bear because you're trying to go in and respond to serious people, if you like. But then you have to go through this incredible invective and spite and hate actually you know on occasions Mm -hmm. um and just criticisms as well 
we think we could take this as a bit of a backhanded compliment from some people who are organisers of unionist groups who were then criticising the, the average age of the audience. Yeah. I see that George Fouts always used to criticise. Hello, George, by the way, if you're listening. Um, sorry, Lord George. Uh, you know, I did <laughs> criticise a previous event because, yeah. you know, it was full in the bottom section of the Queen's Hall, but the balcony, which hadn't been hired, was empty. So actually the balcony and the uh, ground floor of the assembly hall rooms, big hall, was was full. So now we move on to the kind of people who are there. And there were certainly probably more, you know, there's more people over with grey hair than not. Um, a couple of things to say about that. Many people came because they knew Tom Nairn. Tom died uh, this year and was a fair age. Second point, it was 25 quid and that probably did knock a lot of people out. Yep, that was true. The other thing is that lots of the young'uns were in Glasgow on the Palestine march. Yeah. So um, it's not. And I think you've got to be honest and say that, you know, we, we had a discussion of this in the session about the, the yes movement. There's always this anxiety. Where's the young people? And some of the young folk who were in there were just saying, I mean, this could all change. But I mean, at the moment, more of the young generations don't need to do soul searching about this. No. They don't need to go through the arguments. They don't need to read the car manual. They just don't need to have a constant discussion of this. They're broadly yes, and they're waiting for their moment. And since there isn't one, they're doing stuff where they think they can more usefully get an outcome quickly. So it's it's it it would be, it would be fascinating to manage to have that debate actually, <laughs> because it's as if all of us older people are conscious of the naysayers. And I've got to say, I'm very conscious of the naysayers because there's days where I really begin to feel very tired with just the constant barrage, you know, which is obviously the the object. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. the object of the yes. exercise is to weigh you down and make you feel tired, despairing and not wanting to put your head over the parapet. So since I know that's exactly what's to, you know, the desired effect, I'm trying not to do it, but it does strike you down. And um, the younger folk, I think some people look at that and think, I just don't want to be part of that. I don't really want to have to ha have my head blown off. And others just think, well, most of the people around me are for independence. I don't know what you guys all need to keep sitting, you know, ringing Talking your hands about. about. It, thought, yes. You know, I mean, what's your problem? We'll sort that, you know, cross those bridges when we come to it. Let's just talk about something else meantime. But I should say just while I'm at it that... Um, mm -hmm. I had a kind of odd experience the previous week where um, some people may know I have a sort of autoimmune problem, which uh, relates to kidney disease that I had chemotherapy for actually during the independence campaign in 2013. Um, it's been under control for the last 10 years, but it's slightly going the wrong way again. So I was admitted for a kidney biopsy and, and then discharged because my blood pressure was through the roof. So I'm now on horse tablets, <laughs> basically. <laughs> Um, to try and bring the blood pressure down for all sorts of reasons, one of which would be to get back in and have the aforementioned yuck biopsy. Um, so this is just by way of saying there are times where you just need help. And I'm saying now I'm there, folks. <laughs> you know, I'm not giving up or packing up in any way at all. I'm currently trying to book the Denmark film into as many good cinema venues as it's possible to do. But if you're in touch with me, I, you know, it would help me to have help with these things because... I can't keep, you know, thundering on on my own with it all. And uh, just by way of explanation, if you find that sometimes I'm just a wee bit snippy. <laughs> never. I have never known you to be. <laughs> he said, go fingers crossed there. No, no. It's, yeah, it's, it's you're allowed to be scunnered, Leslie, and you're allowed to be tired. And as long as people realise that, that's a, again... And a necessary thing. And I don't want to go overly intellectual and I'm not wanting to do anything to your blood pressure. But Antonio Gramsci uh, uh, developed a, a theory uh, that, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing Marx here, because Marx said popular culture is the terrain on which we struggle to gain consciousness. And um, Nigel Farage has been appearing on the uh, popular I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. Program uh, presented by Anton Deck. Two two young men, oh, young men in comparative terms. Now I always find highly entertaining and very clever. But it, it does seem to me it's, it's the decadence of a of a of a society 
where for viewing figures, they're quite prepared to put Nigel Farage up there for a 1.5 million uh, fee, for which you could actually produce several pretty decent television series examining serious topics or even light entertainment. But no, there is Farage up there and part of the normalisation process of his uh, right wing views. Um, And I really don't care if uh, people challenge him on the programme. And it seems to be backfired slightly in in that I think it's one or 1.5 million fewer people actually watched. Uh, I'm a celebrity, get me out here, um, opening episode uh, with the Farage on it. So, And I was going to say, including the two of us, except we didn't, wouldn't have watched it anyway, we're so not exactly that. missing. No. No. But, no. Uh, and it's yeah. just like, God, you know, hell meant them, as you say, it's it's like this naked attempt. But I wonder, you know, whether there's also a generational thing in it. I don't watch it enough to know if they plant, you know, a, a kind of older controversial figure every time but um well it's just John such a... Lydon and Sean Ryder uh, they've had Matt Hancock Nadine yeah true Doris, there is Matt, yeah. Matt Hancock yeah yeah uh but well who knows maybe it is just the, the very nakedness of this uh kind of attempt to plant him in or maybe people have just you know as a sort of you know you you've fairly got these people in your head for someone who doesn't watch it Pat uh, but yeah the Matt, the Matt Hancock Nadine Doris maybe it's just a kind of rising bilge of boke basically <laughs> Yeah. So get your blood pressure down, Joyce. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's it's it, as I say, it, you know, it it I laugh it off, but it does just does concern me that, that this this theoretical entertainment, the normalisation that took place on things like Question Time, where Farage appeared so often, and the normalisation of statements that he has made and the, the positions that he takes and the parties that he's. The, 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 he set up and, and, and departed from. Um, yeah, and I mean, these guys, was it Reform, which is the old yeah. UKIP, are sitting on nine and ten percent. Yeah. You know, and you know, so, okay, it's a fair, it's a free world. You're allowed to do what you want. He's not running it, I think. Um, and you know, first past the post, hell mend anybody who starts getting upset about anyone daring to sort of, you know, stand candidates who don't have a chance of winning, but might let the other guys in, guys in by yeah. splitting the vote. That's what comes with your first past the post, my dears, you know. So, I mean, there we go. But, yeah, I I, I mean, I, what would be a lovely thing to think that actually that the whole thing began to flag because they'd bothered to have Nigel Farage so front and yes. centre. But yeah. then I suppose it only needs to appeal to, you know, the old sort of dog whistle kind of, <laughs> you know, it's getting him back, back his face back. And look, yeah. we're talking about him. See, I yeah. just sort of object to talking about these twats basically <laughs> because they the are cut. absolute yeah. attention seekers you know and they catch yeah. your eye you get annoyed and then they catch you and you're caught by your anger i mean you don't yeah. need to be a buddhist to think about non-attachment people but that's where you know mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like when a flashy car comes around in the on the street and i hate all these adverts where everybody's standing i mean i've never seen anyone do this <laughs> no. oh look there's the new volvo whatever it is you know and everyone's standing frozen as this <laughs> really quite not very different from every other box of car <laughs> goes past them you know wow yeah. look at that thing there it's kind of even if there is something that's a bit flashy, it's like you're trying to be a bit flashy. I mean, what can one do except withhold the attention you crave, you know? And so I, I just, uh, I would just, I will not be watching or thinking about Nigel Farage in any way at all, and hopefully will not be anywhere near him actually if he starts to clamber his way back onto panels or anything yeah. like that. Because I'm going down to do Sky News, uh, Trevor Phillips program next Sunday, like mm. this one coming. Uh, but the next one, and <clears throat> I think you know that they, they have they've got themselves onto sort of election footing now, so they have to have a rotation of some sort of independency voice once you know once a month mm-hmm. or six weeks or something like that, uh, which is a bit of a it's a bit of a thing. <laughs> I haven't been down to London for God knows how long actually, and I, you know I suppose we've all got quite well. I've got quite used to sitting here. And, you know, when something goes wrong, as it has done quite a lot in the last year, you get summoned on to a Skype contribution. But mm-hmm. to actually have to get your butt down the road and get into a studio at whatever time it is in the morning and sort of make sense with other people. <laughs> hmm, that'll be interesting. Yeah. Oh, well, I, you, you, 
Oh, you always make sense, Leslie. I mean, I mean, whether people, well, I always make sense is an entirely different matter. But the, the, the my final statement is, whew, Scotland men's team are going to the European Championships <laughs> yes. 2024 in Germany. Now, no one I know has managed to get a ticket, mm. but everybody I know is going. So there are going to be these fan zones. I assume lots of beer will be drunk, lots of friends will be made, um, and lots of fun will be had. But it's uh, it's a two two euros in a row, and uh, it was wonderful. The the Stuart Armstrong ex Dundee United now at Southampton. Uh, I did go to Celtic in between, but we'll ignore that one. They scored an absolutely marvellous goal, and it is that it's been a triumph of creating a team club atmosphere at international level and uh, Steve Clark despite his despite his dour exterior has done a fantastic job and mm. so congratulations to the lads and I am now working on the basis of can I get myself over with a camper van to be able to go to the Euros eh me dudes but we, but we shall what's, see. what's happened to us we were both actually yeah let's just go you know when there was even the vaguest chance of qualifying and now that we have now the reality yeah, that's problems that's the... and uh, you know oh, i've yes. got a bag that's big enough and uh where, but, you know, yeah which which yeah. place we base ourselves in oh well i'm sure as it ramps up a bit but then it, it will be like crossing the Andes by frog because most <laughs> most ways of oh, getting there easily will yeah, be yeah. completely gone yeah. but that's um, a that's a that's a a Monty Python's uh, reference for, for, for the youngsters there who you don't get that one. But right, on, on that hilarious note of a, a was that Michael Palin? We shall see you next week, Chelsea.